British Columbia is world-renowned for its natural beauty, diverse communities, and thriving culture. It's also known for being in the grips of a housing affordability crisis decades in the making, which has been compounded by a poison drug crisis and by the COVID-19 pandemic. The province has an ambitious plan to address the crisis through the largest investment in housing affordability in BC's history. Tasked with building tens of thousands of homes in hundreds of communities is BC Housing, the province's agency responsible for developing, managing, and administering a wide range of subsidized housing and homelessness services across the province. BC Housing doesn't do this alone. To address the challenge, they're working with hundreds of partners. In this podcast, you'll get to hear from those delivering innovative and exciting affordable housing solutions. I'm Sarah from BC Housing, and this is Let's Talk Housing. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm sitting down with four of British Columbia's community housing leaders to discuss the housing crisis in this province. Our discussion today will focus on some of the key housing issues and what needs to happen to improve housing affordability. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we are recording this entire podcast on the ancestral homelands of hundreds of Indigenous peoples and nations across British Columbia, each with their own unique traditions and history. Today, I am on the ancestral and unceded homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, who have been the caretakers of these lands for thousands of years. We offer our respect to their peoples, past and present. Also, full transparency, this episode was recorded in October 2021 and reflects the issues and challenges at that time. BC Housing CEO Shane Ramsey is joining us today. BC Housing is one of the organizations that is at the forefront of tackling the housing affordability crisis. The provincial government has entrusted BC Housing to create tens of thousands of new affordable homes, as well as manage and maintain existing social housing in the province of British Columbia, Canada. Margaret Foe, CEO of the Aboriginal Housing Management Association, is also joining us. AMA works closely with BC Housing to support Indigenous-led nonprofit housing societies. AMA is the first Indigenous housing authority in Canada. Jill Atke, CEO of the BC Nonprofit Housing Association, is also here. Her team supports nonprofit housing providers throughout BC with education, research, advocacy, and housing management services. And rounding out our panel is Tom Armstrong, CEO of the Cooperative Housing Federation of BC, which represents and supports housing co-ops throughout the province. Thank you all for joining us here on Let's Talk Housing. So Shane, I'd like to put the first question to you. British Columbia, Canada is in the midst of a housing affordability crisis, and this is one of the most expensive places in the world to live. Several studies have placed Vancouver right near the top, second only to Hong Kong, as one of the least affordable housing markets in the world. And we know that this issue isn't unique to Vancouver. We're seeing unaffordability throughout the rest of British Columbia, from large centers right down to small cities and small towns that until recently didn't experience housing unaffordability. Why is this the issue of our times? Well, thank you, Sarah. And really great to be here with uh, Margaret, Jill, and uh, Tom. And as you said in your opening comments, Sarah, um, British Columbia has um, some of the highest um, housing costs um, in, in, um, in uh, Canada and, and, in fact, around the world. We also have a lack of availability. We know our vacancy rates in, our, um, in all of 
types of our centers, both uh, large and small, are minuscule. Um, what that does is really impact everyone along the housing continuum, but marginalized communities um, are hit even um, harder. So what we're seeing in many of our many of our urban centers, but now into small towns, are um, homeless camps um, springing up. We know that there's a lack of availability of um, affordable rental housing and more and more um, lack of opportunity for folks to get into the home ownership market as well. So what, what it's going to take, and we'll be talking about this today, are really partnerships between all levels of government and civil society, the community housing sector, Indigenous housing groups, in order to put together uh, those responses that are needed across the spectrum, right from homelessness, right up to affordable rental and affordable ownership. All right. Thank you for that, Shane. I think you've touched on some really important issues that we're going to cover in our conversation today and also dig into in more detail in the rest of our Let's Talk Housing podcast series. Jill, I'd like to come to you next. We all know homebuyers are feeling the squeeze. It's all over the news. But perhaps less discussed is how this impacts renters. Can you talk to us just a little bit about how the dramatic increase in housing prices has had an impact on on renters and in particular those who are on low to moderate incomes. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Uh, and really great to be here as well with you all. Um, I think Shane characterized some of the the impacts on individuals quite well. And um, maybe what what's important is just to step back and look at the um, at some of the background and the context. Um, so we sometimes think that buying and renting are separate activities from one another. And, and yes, they are separate activities, but there's actually a strong relationship between them because it's all part of the same housing system. So I think it's important for people to remember that once the federal incentives for purpose-built rental were canceled in the early 1980s, um, and then of course the federal withdrawal from new affordable housing programs in 1993, and the Strata Property Act being introduced in BC in the late 90s, we simply weren't building any purpose-built rental in, in this province and, and across much of the country. So for a while, people were able to get by because uh, we had many municipalities introducing secondary suite bylaws. People started investing more heavily into real estate for the purpose of renting out some of those units. So we we were able to, to kind of get through on that secondary market um, that we had for some time. But once the cost of entry into homeownership began to rise really dramatically, there was more and more demand for rental um, because people who would have been homeowners in previous generations were staying in rental longer and longer. So now these are working folks with good incomes who have been priced out of homeownership. But because we weren't building that new supply for a couple of generations, we had this pent up demand and the supply wasn't there to accommodate it. In fact, when we and our partners developed a 10 year affordable housing plan for for the province in 2017, uh, we calculated a backlog of 80,000 low and moderate income rental units in BC alone. So all of those homes that should have been built over the decades, uh, but simply weren't. So you take those working professionals staying in rental longer, possibly their entire lives, and they are now competing for the same units as those with moderate and low incomes. So without new rental supply, those with lower and moderate incomes are getting pushed into more precarious and inadequate housing. 
And for some, they're really getting pushed out of the housing system entirely. So in this way, the housing system is a bit like a ladder and those with the least money get continuously pushed down the steps until they've fallen off completely. Um, and the way that this is, has changed for the community housing sector, so nonprofits and, and co-ops throughout the province, is that traditionally we've been the housing solution for people whose needs are not met by the market. 30 years ago, that was a really small segment of the population. Well, it's a much larger share today because middle income earners are having trouble finding affordable rental homes. And as Shane mentioned, you know, this plays out regionally as well when we released data through the Canadian Rental Housing Index a couple of years ago, we saw that even those parts of regions that have been typically characterized as more affordable were all of a sudden experiencing much higher rates of, of, of people spending too much of their income on rent. So places like the Sunshine Coast, parts of the island, Coquitlam, Surrey, First, people were priced out of home ownership there, and now they're finding they can't afford to rent. So when you're spending half of your pre-tax income on rent, you're foregoing other basic necessities each month. And you're, you're then very close to becoming homeless. Um, and then just finally, all of this context, you know, is, is bad enough. Um, but we layer in the loss of existing affordable rental in the market through increasing institutional investment. Uh, those investors want a return on their investment. We're seeing huge escalations in rents. Uh, we like to say that the most affordable rentals are the ones that already exist. And we need to be mindful of what's happening to them while we're also trying to build new. So there really is a clear relationship between what happens for those trying to get into the home ownership market, those who are lower and moderate income renters, and then that broader squeeze on supply happening because of an investor class who benefits from this really tight rental market. So we, we really need to, to be viewing this as an entire housing ecosystem. Thank you for that, Jill. You've you've really laid out for our listeners the housing ecosystem. And, you know, one part of the housing ecosystem is housing co-ops. And that's something that not a lot of people really know a lot about. So I'd like to invite you to come in here, Tom, and, and tell us a little bit about how housing co-ops play an important role in providing affordable housing in British Columbia. Sure. Thanks, Sarah. Um, and and. It's nice to be here with everyone else as well. So you're you're right in the sense that housing co-ops aren't um, typically the best known of all the housing options, and and part of that is due to the fact that it's a relatively small sector. There are only 270 odd uh, housing co-op associations and and roughly 15,000 uh, co-op homes in the province. So quite a bit smaller than the nonprofit uh, housing sector. Co-ops are known for uh, a different governance and management model than you'll find uh, in the private sector or the nonprofit housing sector. Um, the residents aren't uh, tenants. They're members of a co-op association that owns the housing uh, collectively. So in a sense, they're both landlord and tenant in, in the same uh, housing. And they, they participate in the governance and the management uh, of the housing through the election of a board of directors uh, and the creation of a number of committees and, and right down to the membership level. So in a way, uh, people who are looking to play a different kind of role or, or have a different kind of relationship uh, to their homes are drawn to housing co-ops. And that allows them the opportunity to create not just uh, you know the built form, uh, but also a community 
that springs up around that common enterprise, um, organized around the seven international co-op principles. And, and coincidentally, uh, this week is National Co-op Week, so it's nice to be speaking about co-ops with you uh, on a day like today. Uh, and that's that's really what gives rise to some of the benefits of community building we see uh, in co-ops. There's a concern for community baked into the co-op principles that makes it uh, a priority for co-op members not only to focus on their own housing needs, but the housing needs of others who don't yet have a co-op to call home. And that's why uh, co-ops have federated uh, through the Co-op Housing Federation of BC and created an engine for development in the co-op sector through the Community Land Trust that seeks to preserve and develop and redevelop uh, co-op homes uh, to to expand the co-op sector and, and make the co-op option more available uh, to more people. I guess the, the last thing I might say about co-ops is that they're known uh, to be a mixed income community models. So in any given co-op um, from 15% to three quarters of the members uh, will pay a housing charge geared to their income and draw on some form of government-based uh, rent geared to income assistance. And that creates an income mixing uh, in that community that, that I think fosters community and citizenship, uh, builds job and life skills, and creates opportunities for people beyond their immediate housing needs. So that, that'll be my elevator pitch on on um, on housing co-ops. And, and we're, we're also, because of that impetus to cooperate, um, we're very happy and proud to be part of um, a housing central uh, framework with uh, Margaret's association and Jill's uh, association to advance the views, not just of individual housing sectors, but the broader community housing sector. And that I think uh, makes BC unique uh, among uh, community housing sectors across the country. Well, now, Margaret, we know, of course, that British Columbia has an very diverse range of First Nations and Inuit Métis communities uh, across the province. And each of these Indigenous communities experiences its own set of unique challenges and opportunities when it comes to housing. Can you share a little bit more about what the housing providers that you work with really need from the provincial and federal governments uh, to help them? Sure. Thank you for that, Sarah. Uh, as Tom and Jill and, and Shane have already alluded to, we're very fortunate here in British Columbia to have the diverse uh, collection of providers and experts in our community and to have the kind of sector support that we have here in British Columbia that I know many other provinces would love to have. But top of our mind is the reality that governments at all levels, and in particular at the national level, need to create a comprehensive Indigenous housing strategy, which has, of course, been promised since 2017 and yet failed to execute for either urban or on-nation communities in any meaningful way. We at AMA here decided to take things into our own hands and we're actually in the final stages of developing a BC urban Indigenous housing strategy that will provide a broader and quantifiable answer to your question on our sector's need, especially when it comes to how many units we need to build or repair and the supports or funding that need to go with with it. We anticipate releasing this report alongside or shortly after the upcoming BC Nonprofit Housing Conference next month. One of the core pieces of this upcoming strategy is the wholesome nature of our advisory panel overseeing the evolution of the strategy, which was inclusive of First Nations, Métis, First Nations Health Authority, other sector leaders, as well as government representatives from both the provincial and the federal levels to truly bridge the gap between on and off 
nation challenges. And, and once again, we're ahead of the game here in British Columbia, having the support, not only sector-wide, but from government here in British Columbia. What we're really needing is for the federal government to step up and step into the game uh, in a meaningful way. In the meantime, though, it's clear that our societies face significant challenges as to internal capacity building. Hiring and retaining qualified staff, including frontline staff, is a daily challenge, especially under the current funding, the rising cost of living, and having to compete compete with federal, provincial, and private entities for a limited quantity of qualified housing staff. Also, there's the recognition of the unique and particular needs of the urban Indigenous peoples is something that AMA has been working hard to promote and to raise awareness about at all levels of government. And we have to acknowledge that BC is doing much better on that level than many other provinces. Despite this, I believe that we still have a long way way ahead of us. Even before the pandemic hit and we needed to reprioritize our spending, the Indigenous Housing Fund was the first program to be cancelled or postponed. And that's not okay. We have to keep the momentum going and not lose hard gain progress towards meaningful inclusion of Indigenous peoples, in particular urban Indigenous peoples. There isn't one space on the housing continuum, including co-ops, where our Indigenous people aren't either the lowest to access or the highest in need, from homelessness to homeowners. I was actually at an urban Indigenous sector roundtable last Thursday with Minister Simons, and we heard loud and clear that the very real realization that while we know that there has been suffering for all sectors of the broader community, the challenges for Indigenous housing and support providers has been complicated by multiple layers, with the affirmation and we call it the affirmation, not the discovery, that many of our children never made it home from the residential schools, to the inaugural Truth and Reconciliation Day on September 30th, which sadly spent, sent more mixed messages, and with those, a detraction from the real story, which lies within the myth of meritocracy, that is, in a nutshell, that democratic choice is, e- is equally available to all, the myth that it is equally available to all. The real truth and truth and reconciliation is that the system we live under is laced with implicit sexism and racism in the very foundation of all levels of government. I saw this best explained last week in a response uh, um, to Leah Gazan, an MP, who was asked what it's like to be an Indigenous woman in government. And she said that institutional change requires acknowledging the myth of meritocracy. Transformative change can only occur when those who have benefited from this myth give up power and privilege to ensure a place for all. And I won't go into the details of the other things she quoted, but I want to acknowledge that there are very good people who have been genuine allies and the opportunity to sit with government like this, this discussion here today has been a good start, but it's not nearly enough. Our providers with the layers of challenges are exhausted. They're suffering from genuine compassion fatigue. As one of our leaders said to me last week, we were behind the eight ball before COVID with low wages, low retention, instability in funding streams, lack of coordination, and most importantly, the genuine need for a for Indigenous, by Indigenous-led strategy, which means we have to have inclusion at both the decision-making and the allocation tables across all levels of government. And as governments at all levels start to peel back their own layers in the search for genuine truth and reconciliation, we need real investment led by the voices of the urban, rural, and northern as equally 
as the three distinction-based groups that government leans on, or will continue to have the status quo of the marginalized. For Indigenous, by Indigenous has to be paramount when it comes to Indigenous challenges. A government top-down of top-down solution has not worked for urban Indigenous peoples for over 150 years. And our members have a combined thousand plus years of experience in the front line, providing all types of housing and support solutions. And they ought to be the first go-to stakeholders when it comes to designing Indigenous housing programs and not the last checkbox before making announcements. We've accomplished a lot with BC on that front. But to quote Mandela from In the Long Walk to Freedom, I dare not linger for my long walk has not ended. Only by broadening and expanding on our good relationship will we see genuine inclusion and true reconciliation with all Indigenous peoples. So thank you. Well, thank you for that, Margaret. You've touched on some really important themes, and we're going to try and come back to some of those during this podcast series. I want to hold on to one of your themes, though, that you that you touched on and, and invite Shane to respond to it. And that's really around the you know, the role of systemic marginalization in housing and affordability. And, you know, Shane, creating new and affordable housing options seems like the obvious path forward to just build more housing. Um, but it's more complicated than that. So can you talk a little bit about how BC housing is changing the way things can be done to really embed equity and sustainability into the work that, that is being done here. I'd like to start by talking about the commodification of housing that exists in our, in our systems. I think that's one of, the, one of the significant root causes. When we're not looking at housing as a basic human right, and it's just a commodity to be bought and sold, we see these impacts disproportionately across the housing um, spectrum. Margaret spoke very eloquently about the impact on Indigenous um, communities, but we also know um, uh, Black people, people of colour, um, women are also being marginalised from those systems too. So I think it's incumbent upon all levels of government to begin to look at, uh, look at the stigmas associated uh, with rental housing. How can we get to a place in our society where we're not thinking of housing as a commodity to be bought and sold, but a basic human right for individuals and their families to build the kind of life that they want to build, whether it's um, education, whether it's um, training, um, better health outcomes. Um, I, I think that's a critical part of the, of the paradigm shift that has, to, um, that has to happen. Also wanted to pick up on Margaret's comments about reconciliation and equity. And I think it's incumbent upon organizations like BC Housing to go down that path with Indigenous communities about how we decolonize our systems. And to Margaret's point about giving up some of that power is absolutely critical um, to uh, being able um, to be successful without incorporating those voices, amplifying those voices, and providing that power in a meaningful way. I don't think we'll be able to affect the kind of changes that we need um, to our system. Um, BC Housing is is committed to um, uh, that path. We have developed our reconciliation strategy and now in the process of doing an equity audit about how we become uh, more inclusive and decolonize our, our policies, programs, and um, strategies. I think we can also look at, and we've piloted some different techniques, Sarah, to your point around sustainability and cost. Are there ways to um, um, uh, lower the cost? Uh, we've um, pioneered um, significant modular approach to the 
to the building of housing, and that has helped to um, that has helped to reduce the cost. The other piece, and and Tom, um, Jill, and Margaret always speak about it, is the power of the community housing sector, and us thinking um, differently in government that the community housing sector is a true partner and not simply the provider of social services that government is not providing itself. If we need to put them on the same kind of um, same kind of setting as we do with our private partners, the community housing sector can take on a significant more uh, more of a role in developing affordable and sustainable housing. Well, this is a great opportunity to bring you in here, Jill. Uh, we we know that in British Columbia we're building more affordable housing than the rest of the country combined, and by we. I mean, all of you on the panel today and the organizations that you represent. So, Jill, can you talk to us a bit about what you think has made the work that housing organizations in BC are doing a model for the rest of the world? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, Sarah. And and there is a lot to unpack there. I, I agree that many parts of the country are eyeing what's happening in British Columbia with great interest. And I have those conversations on a, on a weekly basis. Um, but we're also eyeing what's happening in other parts of the world with interest. So I often like to remind people that, um, that we haven't entirely figured it out here yet in British Columbia. Uh, I do think that we have a few things working in our favor here in the province. Um, and again, that requires just a bit of context. When the federal government stopped funding new affordable housing programs in 1993, BC was only uh, one of two provinces that stepped up to try to fill some of that gap. And it's actually because of that history that we have a Crown Corporation uh, dedicated to housing in this province. And Margaret spoke to uh, to some of the the benefits of uh, of that relationship. And BC Housing understands um, housing, can structure programs that aren't always perfect, but are generally easy to access and that make sense for the sector. Um, so, so that relationship is very strong and that helps to, um, to empower the sector as well. And then secondly, uh, BC and Shane just mentioned this. So just to build on it a little bit, um, BC has historically historically taken the approach that the community housing sector is best positioned to run housing. Government should fund it, subsidize it where necessary, set standards um, that need to be met by the community housing sector, and then get out of the way. Uh, that hasn't been the approach in most other provinces. Uh, government is either running housing in those provinces, be it the province or municipalities, and the community housing sector is much smaller. Um, so they don't have the same capacity that we do here in BC. So, so there's that government enabling role, but I also think it's really important uh, for people to understand that about 15 to 20 percent of the nonprofit housing stock in BC is actually run entirely independently from government. So it was built by faith communities, uh, dedicated citizens coming together to find solutions for their struggling neighbors. Um, they've been supported by fundraising, credit unions, and social impact investors. And we've got more of those here in BC than we seem to in other parts of the country. And they're not looking for a maximum return on their investment. The return is affordable housing. Um, so others uh, have gone quietly about purchasing older purpose-built rental buildings 
things in in the leaner years uh, in the private market and are now running them as affordable rent geared to income housing. Um, and so the sector really is full of innovators who see themselves as part of the solution. And, and it's this foundation of both government investment and innovation that has really allowed the community housing movement in BC to thrive. Um, and then finally, we've got really strong sector-based organizations um, that are here participating in, in this podcast. And I think that these organizations have contributed to an environment where individual nonprofits, co-ops, Indigenous housing providers have started to see themselves as a sector over time. And that wasn't always the case. It took really hard work of all of our predecessors in these roles to travel the province, talking to housing providers who were often working in isolation and helping them connect uh, with each other uh, so that they could share experiences and build on, on the knowledge that that each of them had. Um, that organizing work took place 30, 40 years ago, and it's in, it provided a really incredible foundation on which each of us as leaders of organizations have been able to build on. And then just finally, I want to pick up on something that Tom and Margaret both mentioned earlier. Um, each of our individual associations is strong in, in this province, but we also know that we're stronger together. So through Housing Central, we do much of our work together in a way that you don't see anywhere else in the country. Uh, and when we speak with one voice to government, it makes it a whole lot easier for them to pay attention to us. So I think it's all of these various factors that have come together to support innovation and, and capacity in the community housing sector here in the province. Okay, I'm going to squeeze in one last question. And Shane, I'm hoping you can really help us wrap up here um, by sharing your thoughts on what you think needs to happen for us to get to a place where everyone who needs an affordable home in British Columbia has access to one. I think that um, uh, Jill, Margaret and Tom did a much better job of outlining um, the, the various actions that need to be taken. Uh, taken. Um, if it was just um, one kind of theme, it's I think it's about the theme of um, partnership and how do we respond to needs along the entire housing continuum. And we've heard from each of the speakers around around um, the importance of um, co-ops, the importance of nonprofits, the importance of of um, self determination and self management for Indigenous housing providers in developing uh, their strategy. Um, it involves um, all levels of government, um, the, the local government around land use and planning and um, helping to accelerate the approval uh, processes. Um, the places where the federal and provincial governments are most helpful is in a faci facilitating role, um, providing both um, uh, capital grants and um, operating subsidies in order to achieve uh, affordability over the, the longer term. And if, and we talked about how expensive housing is, uh, but we know to meet the needs of all of our citizens, um, it will take investment at all levels of government and us relying on uh, the community housing sector, the indigenous housing sector, um, as true partners to help us work through those challenges. What a fantastic conversation we've had here today. I would like to thank Shane Ramsey, Jill Atkey, Margaret Foe, and Tom Armstrong for joining us on Let's Talk Housing. Let's talk again soon. To learn how to apply for subsidized housing in British Columbia, 
visit our website, bchousing.org. You can also call us at 1-800-257-7756. That's 1-800-257-7756.